Welcome to the Asian Education Podcast, which is uh, produced by Kyushu University's UNESCO Chair on Education for Peace, Social Justice and Global Citizenship in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. The Asian Education Podcast is a forum for discussing research on education and related social issues around Asia. It also seeks to provide Asian perspectives on global debates over education policy and practice. This is Edward Vickers here, and this week I'll be discussing an issue particularly close to my own heart, the politics of education in Hong Kong. Now, the political situation in Hong Kong has, of course, been much in the news over the past five years or so, particularly since the outbreak of the huge anti-government protests of 2019 and the draconian government crackdown that followed those. That crackdown culminated in the promulgation in 2020 of a new national security law, which I think it's safe to say has utterly transformed many aspects of life and society in Hong Kong, not least education. In this episode, we'll be talking about the implications of that national security law for Hong Kong's new educational order. But we'll also be taking a longer view of the politics of education in this Chinese special administrative region. To do this, though, I've not gone to Hong Kong, but I've come here to London, to the Institute of Education in Bloomsbury. Although, in fact, we're not now sitting in the Institute of Education. We're sitting in a cafe across the road to try to escape from the construction noise. But as you can probably hear, we haven't been entirely successful in doing that. I'm here to talk to Professor Paul Morris, Professor of Comparative Education at the IOE. And before coming to the IOE in 2007, Paul had a long and distinguished career in higher education in Hong Kong, beginning in the late 1970s and culminating in five years as the president of Hong Kong's Institute of Education, now the Education University of Hong Kong. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Paul. Despite your long career in Hong Kong, the high point perhaps being supervising me for my PhD, <laughs> some listeners may be wondering, what are we, two aging white males, doing discussing Hong Kong here in London, the former imperial metropolis? Shouldn't we be in Hong Kong, talking to real Hong Kongers? How well, would you respond to that? Most definitely, yes, we should be in Hong Kong talking to people on the ground there. But uh, unfortunately, it's very difficult for people to speak openly and uh, given the current, current environment of national security law, it's been very noticeable how the vagueness of that law has given the impression, understandable impression, given the number of people who've been put in jail, that uh, any actions commenting on or critical of the current government can essentially end you, you can end up in, in court and jail. And th th this is evident, for example, this general fear and uncertainty about what, what is the limits of free speech uh, is evident in my role now as a journal editor. I've had articles withdrawn uh, after they've been submitted by academics from Hong Kong, because they fear the contents, which are not especially critical or negative, but uh, their, their analysis and their comments about events in Hong Kong or China 
could be interpreted as contrary to national security law. So that there's a genuine climate of fear, which I think makes it very difficult for those in Hong Kong to speak openly about what's going on there now. Yes, well, I'm, in fact, I've recently published a book with the University Press in Hong Kong, yes. um, where the uh, the editors got in touch with uh, me and my um, co-authors and asked us to tone down uh, several remarks in our volume introduction to do with current Chinese policy in Xinjiang, for example. So yes. that was quite a sort of telling reflection of what you're you're talking about, the sort of pressures. There is, there is a long tradition in Hong Kong where publishers, for example, constantly attempt to anticipate what it is that's wanted, and this has often resulted in forms of, sort of self-censorship, trying to reflect what people think is government would get approval, for example, uh, approval of textbooks. But the, the, the situation's really changed quite dramatically now with, you know, when, when people who write a satirical children's book about sheep and shepherds and protecting them from lions and wolves and get 19 years in, 19, sorry, 19 months in jail, then it's, it's not clear, you know, um, where, where the boundaries of uh, public commentary and, and criticism are. Um, because the the law is so vague. Um, yes, it's purposely vague to basically encourage people to to um, if anything go beyond the the boundaries of uh, reasonable caution. And um, yeah, yeah, and it's um, it, it's it's really really very sad because one of, one of the great opportunities. That Hong Kong did provide for a long time was to be able to to work in a system which was fairly open and accepting of uh, critical divergent views and that that was in a sense although Hong Kong never had a full full system of democracy it did have a very open and free press Mm. Uh, and academic freedom was largely respected so it was a sort of island of openness in that region and a and a, uh, a base for critically discussing and researching not just you know, issues relating to Hong Kong society itself, but also more broadly yeah. relating to, to China. And it's quite noticeable that that sort of critical scholarship is largely... Uh, Disappeared now. That, that, it, this, that is not to suggest that, sort of, through history, that uh, academic freedom was sort of absolutely total and absolute. You know, there there were incidents historically, like the Robert Jern polling affair at Hong Kong U, where the vice chancellor seemed to be under pressure from government to close down. Polling unit at the oh, this is um, more than twenty years, years ago now. Twenty years ago, in two thousand, where where a sociologist yes. at the University of Hong Kong was pressured by the university senior That's management right. to close down a, an opinion polling operation that Wh- he was running. running, which was showing how unpopular post, the post handover government yeah. was. Yeah, I mean, actually, that erupted just as I was finishing my PhD. PhD. But the, the fact that it erupted. It was actually 
Well, A, you know, there were attempts to limit academic freedom, but also the reaction to it was such that sort of, well, I think the Vice-Chancellor in the end had to resign. Yes, it, yes. Resign, because in a sense it, it was seen as inappropriate for government to try to silence so, academics. And, and my own experience uh, in 2007, in a sense, reflected a, a, a similar scenario in that I was found to be under pressure to silence staff who were critical of government. So let's come back in a minute yeah. to, to your experience in 2007 and what that said about academic freedom in Hong Kong. Um, first of all, do you want to say something a bit more about how you came to be in Hong Kong oh, yes, in the yeah. first place and your, your, your career there? I first went to Hong Kong in 1976 as a, an assistant lecturer in the then Department of Education, a very small department. Um, and it slow, quite rapidly grew to incorporate um, other departments, for instance, speech and hearing science, physical education. It, it, it grew as it, and as the, it largely benefited as a department from government deciding to expect all teachers to be qualified. So there were massive programs run by the universities to upgrade to either degree level or postgraduate certificate at education level, upgrade teachers so they had a teaching qualification. And most of those, the majority of these were in service. And it, it, teaching was uh, fascinating because a great deal of time was spent observing and watching fairly experienced teachers in their classrooms as part of teaching practice. It was, um, yeah, it, the, the department grew, it became a faculty with various sub-departments within it. I, most of my initial time was, was involved in teaching sociology of education and training economics teachers. Uh, economics being a very large part of the secondary school curriculum. But would you say that the sort of nature of that department and, actually, and also the nature of your work sort of changed from the late 70s through to the 1990s and beyond from being more of a sort of technical um, uh, training and support role for teachers and for schools, for the education system, yes. towards more of a research focus yeah. and increasingly providing sort of critical reflection, critical commentary on the direction of education policy. Yes, I, th I think that's a, a very accurate portrayal. One could say that in, when I first went in 76, it operated very much like a teacher training college, focusing on teacher education. University of Hong Kong. University of, of Hong Kong, yeah. The, the, um, what research there was revolved around specific teaching of school subjects. 90% uh, of the students were on teacher education programs. There were very few masters. I don't think there were any masters programs when I went. And, and people few, like you weren't expected to have PhDs. I, I, I didn't have a PhD. There was a single PhD in, in the department and it was slightly looked down on having a PhD in the belief that you know, sort of people did this if they couldn't get a good academic job when they graduated. Hmm. You know, they went on and did a PhD as a sort of 
because they couldn't get immediately a, a job. Uh, it, it, yes, so it, PhDs were rare, there was very little research, but over time there's a significant growth in master's programs, uh, the whole university system was shifting to expect and assess and, and, reward. and reward research and research output, so we, we had RAEs or RAFs to, to assess staff. And so we, we saw an exponential growth of master's programs, the number of PhD students. And that, that I was very fortunate to be able to get involved in um, supervising a number of PhD students because soon after going to Hong Kong, I, I, I was advised then by an external examiner who sadly has just died, Eric Hoyle, to do a PhD, which I, I did part-time at Sussex in the late 70s. Um, yes, so probably like many education faculties, there was a shift to a firm focus on teacher education to a much greater focus on scholarship, research, PhD students, satisfying the ref, etc. Yeah, I mean, as, as you already said, I mean, we shouldn't you know, as two aging old, you know, colonial retreads sitting here in London, sort of wax nostalgic no, or wax too nostalgic about uh, the situation in Hong Kong as regards um, academic freedom or, yeah. you know, the flourishing of research. I mean, when I arrived in Hong Kong in the late 1990s to do my PhD and I was researching, I mean, I was doing critical yes. research on the history education uh, situation in Hong Kong on the history of the history curriculum. Um, I mean, I myself was able to conduct my doctoral research in um, complete freedom, really. Yeah. Uh, but you have already alluded to the Robert Jung um, yeah. uh, controversy in 2000. And although uh, this is the controversy over the, the, the conducting of, yeah. a, of sort of opinion polling showing how unpopular the Hong Kong government was. And although, as you said, ultimately that was resolved, the way that was resolved was in, encouraging regarding the yeah. situation in Hong Kong universities, the, the, the state of academic freedom then, the, that controversy did show that, you know, <laughs> there were currents, quite strong currents pushing in the other direction because I was on the... Uh, faculty board. I was the student representative, so I was getting all the emails. Um, I was seeing all the emails, sort of bouncing backwards and forwards amongst faculty board members as this controversy broke. And the message from the dean initially was to say, "Let's all hunker down and get behind the university and the vice chancellor in the, yeah. these difficult times," and um, you know basically back the position of the university's senior management, yeah. which was pressuring this academic to stop conducting these, yeah. these opinion polls. Uh, and I shot back and said, I'm just about to take a PhD from this institution. And I want a PhD from an institution that has a strong international reputation that is you know, yeah. rega well regarded in terms of its support for critical scholarship, not an institution that suppresses it and sort of toadies to senior management, uh, yeah. you know, who in turn do the bidding of the local government. And, and, you know, to give them credit, 
most of the faculty members backed that position then, yeah. sort of more than 20 years ago. But there were a substantial number in senior positions yeah, who right. did not. Yes, well, the, the, the connection between university and, and government was a, was a really quite close one. And, but, but, I think, but I think also one has to put this in the context of a broader climate in Hong Kong of a colonial government that found it very had a very low level of legitimacy when you scratch the surface mm. and was desperate to avoid conflict and controversy so it tended to often make policies which were voluntary as opposed to mandatory for example on on questions of the language of instruction would say, yes, everybody should study in their mother tongue, but that was the law, but then the next phrase would say, but it's up to schools to decide. Mm -hmm. So there was this general climate that government policy was constantly trying to sort of weave a way of not, not actually implementing anything that might have large proportions of population up in arms. So when they did, for example, put pressure, it was all behind the scenes and very low levels. So the government, yes, repeatedly there was this pattern of the government sort of sending out signals as to how they thought schools should operate or what direction um, you know the curriculum should should move in as regards, as you said, medium of instruction, um, uh, you know, more national education, field trips for students to China. But all of this was in the end reduced to sort of encouragement or exhortation guidelines guidelines rather than forcing people to do things that maybe many people didn't want to do because the government's terrified of protests or um, controversy or instability yes Um, because as you said it, it although on the surface a government that doesn't depend on elections for its mandate might seem to be in a strong position yeah. to force through uh, changes uh, and potentially unpopular changes. Actually, the opposite is true, especially in a system like Hong Kong's was then, yeah. where you have a free media, where yeah. you have you sure. know quite a sort of noisy public space yeah. where unpopular policies will instantly meet with quite vehement criticism. Um, and because the government can't rely on an electoral mandate, um, uh, and because people don't have the chance, the opportunity of sort of changing the government through elections, what do they do? They go out on the streets yeah. um, quite readily to, to and, protest. And, and uh, you know, Hong Kong has had a, a, a long history of public protests going back a, a, a long way. But this sort of, it, it's very important to, to underline this, the role of the media in Hong Kong for some sort of reason, the coverage of education in the media in Hong Kong is far more extensive and intensive than is the you know is the case, let's say, in this country. Or, or certainly that has been true. Has been, you know. So minor, inc- small incidents in schools, uh, teacher misbehaviour, curriculum reforms were debated and. 
commented on and critiqued in the media in in ways you saw no equivalent of here. Mm. You know, so for example, a, a proposal to create a subject called social studies to put Chinese history into it. This 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 was headline stuff mm. um, in the newspapers. So. Uh, Education and educational issues were at the forefront of uh, public debate and awareness. And it, it sort of absolutely put the government in that if it stepped forward or did things in education, it knew that this was going to be under heavy-duty public scrutiny. And repeatedly we've seen the government sort of take... Um, Courageous, brave initiatives in education. Yeah. Uh, courageous in the yes minister sense. Um, for example, on medium of instruction in 1997, where they announced that they were going to compel most schools to start teaching in in Chinese, effectively Cantonese, only then to backtrack in the face of large popular protests. Um, uh, and then in... 2012, when the government attempted to introduce moral and national education, uh, that proposal was ignominiously abandoned yes. in late 2012 in the face of these massive protests featuring uh, the likes of Joshua Wong, um, Agnes Chow, when they were still high school students. Yeah. Um, and, and so, as you say, yeah, repeatedly we see this pattern of the government sure. being reminded, effectively, of the weakness of its own mm -hmm. legitimacy and then having, to, often rather embarrassingly, to backtrack. Yeah. Now, I mean, in terms of your own career, I mean, in Hong, your career in Hong Kong, uh, as you briefly mentioned, that came to an end, yeah, a uh, premature I, end in I, 2007. I, I was at Hong Kong U up until from 1976 to 2000. I was dean there for about six years during the time when a uh, large number of undergraduate programs, B.Eds, Masters and new, new sub-departments in P and Speech and Human Science were established. I left uh, Hong Kong U to be deputy president uh, and then subsequently president of the then Hong Kong Institute of Education. Just after it was established? Uh, no, it had been going. It had had... Um, uh, two presidents before me. Oh, had it? But it was an amalgamation. Yes. In, 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 in the 1990s, it was created as an amalgamation of former teacher training institutes. Yes. Uh, Non-graduate teachers were trained in uh, teacher training colleges run directly by the Government Department of Education. And at some point, government, uh, one of the Education Commission reports said, these really were not up to standard and they needed to be taken out of the government and made independent uh, institution. So the Hong Kong IED was established as a basically a teacher training college, uh, amalgamating all those PRIPs, six or seven small colleges of education. And from 2000, and it, it had a, a tough start because uh, when it was established, it, it inherited many of the staff who were from the colleges of education. The place was trying to upgrade to award degrees and become a degree awarding institution. Um, 
and, and eventually hope to become a sort of normal type university. In 2002, I became president and my main task was to try, well, A, to get a degree, um, self-accrediting status. Degree awarding powers. Degree awarding powers, so that we didn't have to ask a third party to recognize our, our programs and we could develop our own. Um, and in this process, um, two things were going on. One, I was under a lot of pressure by the then Minister of Education to merge um, Hong Kong IED with Chinese, Uni Chinese University of Hong Kong, of which he was the former Vice-Chancellor. And secondly, some of the staff of the IED were quite critical of the major government reforms going on there. And this came to a head when it went into the press um, that uh, I, I was under pressure, these pressures. And well, so the trigger for that was, uh, I mean, you were appointed initially for a five-year five term, term as, yes. as president. And during that five-year term, as you said, the um, uh, there was tension with... The Minister of Education and chairman, with chairman of council and with the chairman of the council of the Institute of Education, which the government appointed. Yes. Um, and when your contract came up for renewal in 2007, they took that opportunity to basically get rid of you yes. and try and replace you with someone they thought would be more amenable to yes. to the kinds of pressure yes. you'd experienced. And all, all of this blew up at a time when the chief executive, there was an election for the chief executive. And it, a colleague of mine wrote an article making public the pressure I was under. And the chief executive really didn't want this issue hanging around during his election. So the chief executive being the head of the, the government yeah, in the Hong Kong. The head of the government in Hong Kong. He, he basically sort of kicked it into the long grass and said, oh, we'll have a commission of inquiry. So a legal commission of inquiry was established, which went, oh goodness, went on for months and cost a fortune, but eventually concluded, one of its conclusions was that I had been put under pressure to silence stuff. Mm. Um, and the then minister, the former minister, uh, civil servant who'd done that, resigned from her post as the head of the independent corruption agency um, but in, in, in a sense the, the, this sort of illustrates the extent to which academic autonomy was seen to be something that was important and should be defended and that was the position taken by the media um, and yes and, it was it was huge news in Hong Kong in 2007 I mean I remember <laughs> You, you weren't exactly sort of man of the year that year in Hong Kong, but there was some sort of um, poll or survey that sort of had you coming in at, at, at sort of no, celebrity number seven for the year 2007, because this was such a big deal yeah. that, that the government was threatening academic freedom. In a way that you wouldn't probably see in this country. I mean, it, it was not a question of in the education press. This was in your with tabloid newspapers and mm, um, mm. just for many weeks on end it, it was the headline news event what was going on in the commission of inquiry 
but, but the whole the whole event sort of meant post handover academic issue was an a prob, an issue. You know, there was a perception that this was not acceptable, mm. and the former civil servant was criticised by the commission and resigned. Mm. Um, yes, I mean there was a concrete outcome of that yeah, result in terms of. The, the, the non-reappointment of the Minister of Education and the resignation of the, the Secretary of the yeah. Education Bureau. That's right. So it was, um, it, it did reflect that uh, in, in some senses uh, an understanding of the importance of, of academic freedom was heightened in much more acute in Hong Kong than I think it is, for example, in this country. Mm. Because it was seen to be symbolic of something that was distinctive about Hong Kong, you know, in, in the absence of sort of uh, democracy, mm. the, the idea that you could openly, publicly criticize and not have pressure put and think that concepts like freedom of speech and mm. academic freedom were sort of central to the Hong Kong psyche. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, it's, it's, it, it, it was such a big deal, this controversy, because academic freedom was seen as a manifestation of, of the civil liberties which have had come to be seen as core to Hong Kong's identity and yeah. what made Hong Kong distinct from uh, the Chinese mainland. Um, I mean, rec well, so recently you and I co-authored um, an article that basically tracks the the disintegration of that distinctiveness uh, since 2019. So we, we're looking at the educational implications of the 2020 uh, national security law that was introduced in the aftermath of the, the huge protests yeah. of 2019 to 2020. Uh, and we talk about an acceleration of um, mainlandization. Um, now, you've not been to Hong Kong uh, since 2019. Um, I was there briefly uh, in mid-2022. Um, but, you know, from everything you've heard and read, uh, how extensive do you think the transformation of the educational landscape in, in Hong Kong has been in the last two or three years? For pe especially for teachers and academics working in areas that involve analyzing, reflecting, teaching about society, uh, politics, education, broadly the social science, that the landscape has massively changed. Um, there, for example, teachers of liberal studies have been vilified as the, uh, as responsible for uh, Youth protest. So, liberal studies is a school. I suppose subject. it's a, it's a it, well, it's a school subject that um, was made compulsory in two thousand and nine, and I suppose it's an equivalent of, or a rough equivalent of a sort of civics subject. Yeah, broad, broad social studies, yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah, and so teachers of that subject have, have well, the subject's now been abolished. The teachers now expected to teach something, something called citizenship and social, social development. Yeah. And so their role has shifted from trying to get pupils to think about, uh, develop critical thinking, look at controversial issues, recognize different viewpoints, those sort of aspects of education, 
to one of essentially sort of teaching the patriotic party line, the wonders of the basic law, the benefits of the national security law. But the, 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 the real trigger that's gone on is that national security law has sent a, a chill down uh, the, the education system where pe people are not sure what the limits are of any, anything, any commentary. And it could, for example, be viewed as collusion with a foreign power. Mm. Uh, any Anything could be viewed as... Uh, subversive virtually um, it doesn't matter where you are or when it happened there's no time limits there's no geographic lim limitations on the law mm -hmm. and you, you 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 have seen sort of large number of academics leaving Hong Kong especially in the social sciences and a movement to sort of study things which is sort of not about present times and places and the realities of of Hong Kong. Yes, there's there's been a that we're certainly seeing pressures to depoliticize educational research, or to politicize it in a way that is sort of That's actively right. supportive of the the government's agenda. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as you say, I mean, right through the education system, uh, we're seeing pressures on teachers, pressures on academics, which um, many are finding you know, intolerable. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I know of one one case of a, a, a an art teacher <laughs> in a local school who um, who resigned about a year ago. Yes. Um, because she just felt that the, the climate within the school was 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 becoming just very uncomfortable. Well, um, well, and and and, and uh, the hours that had been allotted to teaching art uh, while she was there, after she left, were subsequently given over to moral education. Yeah. Um, which well, I think well, very I, telling. I, I think that's reflected in the. Many of the people who've left Hong Kong, for example, under the um, BNO passport scheme, mm. if you actually talk to them, their, their primary purpose for leaving, often without a, a job or a good job to, come, to go to in this country, and the same would apply going to Australia or Canada, many of them are just worried that their children's education, they see it sort of slowly being narrowed. Mm. You know, to sort of, sort of a form of indoctrination into Xi Jinping's thought. Yes, um, exactly. I mean, I've had the same sorts of conversations yeah. with Hong Kong. I suppose we could call them Hong Kong refugees yeah. here in Britain. So they, they, they really don't like the way the you know, from kindergarten upwards the school system is developing. And I think I think one of the most chilling things, in a sense, one knows. Um, what the mainland is trying to do, that's quite clear, uh, to subsume Hong Kong and sort of minimize its, its, its identity. But is that the role that's now happening in, in Hong Kong, the role being played in this by universities themselves? Mm. Right? So uh, there's the one thing the sort of government and the police coming in and stamping their authority. But 
on the whole, they haven't really had to because the with the expectations of the national security law in, in terms of erasing much of Hong Kong's identity is, is effectively being undertaken by university authorities themselves. Closing down student unions, expelling students, reporting students to the authorities if they have independent views, reporting many staff of contracts not being renewed. Uh, well, of course, we don't know exactly what is going on behind the scenes in yeah. terms of pressure from the government on university yeah. senior managers. But certainly, from outside the sector, uh, the spectacle that we're witnessing is one of apparently very ready compliance yeah. by universities with the dictates of the national security law. Um, uh, yeah, so as you said, there are no autonomous student unions in, in left yeah. in, in Hong Kong, no involvement of students in university governance Government. anymore. Uh, students are now required, I think in all the universities, to take courses which promote the benefits and values national of security, security courses courses which are a sort of light version of um of the politics uh, or ideology courses that students on the mainland have to have take. to have to study compulsory at all universities in the mainland so the, yes a, a, a form of those is now being introduced into hong kong's universities i suspect though for academics working in chemistry or Biosciences, the relative impact is quite minimal. Yeah. So we're talking really about the impact on people working in social sciences, humanities, education. That's where all of this is really being felt. Yes. Um, now, four years ago, you and I visited Hong Kong. So we were in Hong Kong in uh, early June 2019, just before the, these huge protests kicked off. And I mean, I don't think anyone then was expecting, well, first of all, those protests, yeah. and, and secondly, you know, what then has followed on from those. Um, certainly, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so, should we have been? Uh, you know, what were we? What were we missing? Um, I, I, yeah, I think most people were were really quite surprised the way those uh, protests escalated from. You know, many times in its history, Hong Kong is, well, recent history had over a million people on the streets marching peacefully and with absolute minimal tension or conflict. But then, then things escalated and, and really massively changed. And it's, it's difficult really to, to sort of, was it frustration? Was it, uh, yeah, maybe there are two questions here. I mean, one is what provoked those protests in the first place? Yeah. But secondly, you know, what, how big a role did the government's response to the protests play in escalating them? Um, sure. um, and I mean, in terms of the first question, I mean, what were the sources of the frustration uh, or anger that lay behind the protests in the first place? Um, I mean, it's not just political, I think. It's no. also for young people in Hong Kong, uh, a mixture of political, you know, resentments over the the, 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 the sort of rhetoric or 
that's coming out of the government and the challenge to their sense of their own identity as Hong Kongers, but also economic uh, factors are playing a big role, aren't yeah. they? Rising youth unemployment, um, a graduate job market in which locals were now competing with a much broader range of people, often from the mainland. The, the, the broad, in a sense, breakdown, which is not u- unique to Hong Kong, of the, the sort of the basic meritocratic logic that somehow if you studied hard, worked hard at school and went to university and then get got a good job. That was true through much of Hong Kong's history and in a sense it's the colonial government benefited from that uh, sort of economic legitimacy that it gave them. That, that begun to break down as it has well, done in many but, countries. Yeah, exactly, as it has done in many countries, this sort of intergenerational social contract, if you like. This, you this, get a better you, you You're going to have it better than your parents. Yeah. Um, that has certainly broken down in Hong Kong. And if, as you say, it's not the only place where that's uh, broken down, but yeah. it's happened perhaps more starkly in yeah. Hong Kong than in many other places, But with, and with the added element of the the competition between locals and mainlanders. And, and, then, and then on, yes, that and that competition, which uh, became, if you like, the source of frustration, uh, sort of exacerbated by other things like um, popular goods in shops disappearing, mm-hmm. you know, milk powder to cosmetics being yeah. sold. I mean, I mean, you, so, so in terms of the competition between locals and mainlanders. I mean, I suppose you could see it in some sense as a manifestation of tensions we see elsewhere in the world over yes, immigrants. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and of course there's a dark side to that. And there yes. is in Hong Kong too. Um, you know, anti-mainlander prejudice, I think we should, yeah, you know, we should say this. It's, it often takes quite unpleasant forms. Uh, I mean, I had a, a Chinese student who went to do a PhD in Hong Kong about 10 years ago, who's from Shanghai, yeah. who was pregnant while she was doing her PhD yeah. at the University of Hong Kong and really experienced some quite unpleasant prejudice. And she, there was this phenomenon of pregnant mainland women coming to Hong Kong to have yes, their babies yes, and, and right. sort of get them residency. And of course, everyone assumed she's a pregnant mainlander. That's what she's here for. But she wasn't. And in the end, she went back to China to have her, her baby. But, um, you know, so there is a, a sort of, you know, everywhere where this sort of prejudice uh, surfaces, it can take some quite unpleasant forms. But I think the key point to make in Hong Kong and the reason why it's, it's different, it's difficult to disentangle the sort of political, cultural, cultural questions connection. from economic questions is who is making the decisions over immigration policy in Hong Kong? Well, who I, controls the levers? levers? And all these incidents, you know, over pregnant mothers, milk powder, shampoos, cosmetics not being available in the stores, Mongkok, you know, large numbers of people coming over, filling suitcases and going back. It sort of was a real source of tension and created a quite really unpleasant uh, atmosphere. But in the, who, who was responsible? I, I think to a large extent, the Hong, 
Hong Kong government has a serious problem, and I suspect it was not communicating with the mainland exactly how feelings were and, mm. and probably telling Beijing what they wanted to hear. Mm. And I think that allowed many of these sort of sources of conflict to go on for far too, too long. Well, and yeah, that's a very important point, I think. And in that sense, you know, we talk about one country, two systems. But because Hong Kong's government's ultimately appointed by Beijing, you know, the patterns of accountability yes. in Hong Kong ultimately, ever since 1997, have worked the same way as they do in mainland China. Uh, where, you know, because officials at any, any level are dependent on those higher up the hierarchy yeah. for their position, their incentive is to tell their, Mas um, masters. their masters what they want to hear rather than to reflect yeah. um, the, 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 the concerns of the population they're governing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we've seen in Hong Kong. And um, perhaps that's the root, actually, of a lot of the problems. I, I think the, the, the Hong Kong government sort of really exacerbated the situation uh, in, in, by, by essentially not reflecting some of the, the, the upcoming tensions and issues in a way that might have allowed them to be addressed at a much earlier stage. And that is, is, seems to be um, the cause of quite considerable frustration on the part of the Beijing authorities. Yes. So what we saw in 2019 uh, and, and what was confirmed by the passing of the national security law in 2020 was really a decision by Beijing to bypass uh, the local government in Hong Kong and effectively to, to take control, to, to, to take far more direct control over Hong Kong affairs. And, and then... Because they, they don't trust. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, they don't trust uh, Hong no, Kong they, officials, they, they, even self-declared loyalists. They don't trust them to they, be they, honest. They moved in people who basically managed directly. Mm. And the, the Hong Kong government, Carrie Lam especially, became a bit of a, well, a token and a figure of fun, you know, which was made a lot worse by the, the incident that to an extent, sort of put this in the background, which was COVID, mm. because the lockdown of COVID basically sort of created a form of martial law. Um, and the, the, the handling of COVID in Hong Kong has, has, has been a bit of a, a real problem, um, which certainly did, did the local government no, no, no credit. Mm. Uh, no, I think in all sorts of ways. I mean, Carrie Lam and, and, and but many of the local officials were come to see. They came to be seen as uh, yeah. liability yeah. by yes. the mainland authorities, and and, and uh, a distinct, not only perceived to be inept, but also increasingly seen to be really just representing the interests of of Beijing rather mm. than, than local people. Well, within Hong Kong, certainly seen in that way. Seen yeah. in that way, yeah. Um, what do you think lies ahead for education in Hong Kong, for you know, for everybody involved in it, teachers, academics, students? I think uh, 
given the way the national security law has already been imposed, which is, uses the tactic of basically um, charging people with sedition or whatever and sending them to jail and then keeping them there for, for a long period of time without bail, which is effectively becomes the prison sentence and what's waiting till they set, declare themselves guilty and then taking them to court because um, the only way they're going to get out of jail is to um, plead guilty. G given the sort of the nature of the way that law is operating and the fear it's put in people, I think you're going to have quite a long period of time where teachers and universities are really cautious. Uh, you know, what they're feeling deep down inside is one thing, and, and Hong Kongers do have an amazing um, capacity for um, critical thinking and um, well, humour. Mm. As well, so, but I think I think it will be largely they they will be so cautious and fearful that um, we already see it within universities. We see it in schools and kindergartens. They will go through the motions of doing what they're expected to do. Mm. Whether that deep down really reflects what they they believe and think is, is really another question. But I I cannot see uh, school principals being able to tolerate teachers who want to teach children to think critically about issues in Hong Kong. I well, no, I mean, and clearly there are signs that school principals are, um, uh, in many cases, gilding the lily of, yeah. um, you know, government censorship and ideological control. Um, so I think it was about a year ago, um, just over a year ago, uh, for the first time, Hong Kong schools were uh, instructed to conduct activities to commemorate the Nanjing Massacre in 1937 it was part of national education, patriotic education. And in one school, well, I, undoubtedly in more than one school, uh, uh, primary school students aged six or, or yeah. thereabouts were shown documentary footage of Japanese soldiers beheading civilians yeah. and you know, quite horrific images of atrocities um, committed in Nanjing in 1937, you know, and so the kids were going home traumatized and telling their parents, and and there was there was a uh, there was some discussion of this in the local media, um, but this was a sign of how teachers and schools and principals were, um, you know, simply too scared to exercise their own judgment yes. uh, over how such material should be handled uh, and, and just sort of go ahead and do what they felt they were expected to do by the yeah. government. But what, 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 one of the areas that I would anticipate we'll see movement on is that Hong Kong schools of traditionally secondary schools and below taught in a mixture of um, Cantonese and English. Mm -hmm. um, a bit more English as you move up the school system. Uh, and I would anticipate that uh, there, there will be a sort of move to teach in Putonghoa. Uh, but that will co would come with challenges because the, the difference in, in the written languages. 
between the mainland and Hong Kong, Hong Kong using the classical complex characters, which uh, the mainland doesn't. So it would be interesting to watch you know, what, what happens there, because a key a- aspect of Hong Kong's identity is its, Canton- its Cantonese. Yeah. I think one change that we're already seeing is in a sort of broader reorientation of Hong Kong um, away from engagements with uh, the rest of the world or away from this vision of Hong Kong as an international city uh, towards engagement or integration with the hinterland in the Pearl River Delta, with Shenzhen, with Guangzhou, with Zhuhai, Macau, um, the Greater Bay Area. And part of that involves uh, incentivizing or pressuring Hong Kong universities to form partnerships with their counterparts across the border. And um, I hear that that extends to... um, the field of education, or, or, or in some ways particularly involves the field of education. So, for example, uh, South China Normal University yes. in Guangzhou uh, is uh, setting up programs, uh, teacher training programs, which are aimed at teachers from Hong Kong or destined for Hong Kong schools. And, and, and also, one of the features of uh, the subject that the place level studies one of its key features is it, uh, it's a, uh, civic and social development, citizenship, citizenship and, social development. and social development. The subject of place liberal studies is that it has a requirement that children will spend um, a field trip in China. That's right. Um, so, so the, uh, the 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 previous liberal studies subject had a requirement that students um, conduct some sort of independent Independent project research research into some um, pressing contemporary social issue. That has gone, and in its place, in a sense, is this compulsory field trip to mainland China, which now all uh, high school students in Hong Kong will have to do. I, I, I would imagine if you look at what's happened, for example, in China's periphery, Xinjiang, Tibet, You'll see, and it's, it's, I know it's already happening, uh, increased forms of surveillance, especially electronic. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hong Kong streets now have got quite advanced facial recognition systems um, where people can be identified and, and tracked very carefully. And I, wa- I wonder if we'll see systems like that um, appearing in schools. Or, or people in schools with a responsibility to sort of keep an eye on uh, people's thoughts. Um, right. Hong Kong as a laboratory for the 21st century high-tech thought police. Well, it, it, you know, it, uh, they, they'd already have amazingly sophisticated forms of technology uh, which have been used in, in Xinjiang very, very effectively. Mm, mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised um, that there were already reports of Hong Kong universities having cadres of officials from the mainland uh, operating within them. 
installed on campus. Installed yes. on campus, yes, yes as, as, as advisors. Right, well, on that well, slightly stunning. depressing note, um, yeah, thanks very much, Paul. Um, yeah, um, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you, Ed. Cheers. Cheers, mate. That was...